So um, it, it, uh, it's uh, good to be here on a Wednesday night and cover some new ground for a lot of us. Uh, how many of you here would say that you are very familiar with this book? Anybody? I wouldn't have not had my hand raised um, before Monday when I studied it. So three chapters long, it is a fascinating book. I hope when you leave tonight, you will have a lot more appreciation for it. I was uh, joking around with uh, uh, Miss Jeannie Wolf. She's my secretary, and uh, I'd like to pick on her. And I, I don't let her pick on me because I'm her boss. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, she picks back sometimes. But I was telling her this week that I had a pastor when I was a teenager. He would pronounce this Habakkuk. Habakkuk. And uh, he was my pastor maybe five or six years. He's a guy that married my wife and I. And um, every time I'd hear him say that, I'd say, no, you're saying it wrong. It's Habakkuk. Anybody else here ever heard it pronounced Habakkuk? You, a few of you have. How many of you here pronounce it that way? All right. Uh, it's Habakkuk. And I did confirm this with someone who knows Hebrew. So just so you know, you're wrong. No, I'm just teasing you. Um, but Habakkuk. Turn over to chapter 2 with me, if you would, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word tonight. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18. And we're going to read down through verse number 20. It says there, What profit the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molted image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein, to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. Look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so tonight we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk. The title of the message or the lesson is, That's not fair. That's not fair. And uh, this was Habakkuk's uh, attitude at the beginning of the book, and the Lord would help straighten him out by the end of it. Let's pray. God, I ask tonight that you help us as we look at the injustices and the idolatry in the world around us. And Lord, sometimes we're left like uh, Habakkuk to wonder, where are you? Why are you letting this go on and happen? And seemingly, why do you let these things go unpunished? And as you uh, kind of pulled back the divine curtain and, and showed uh, your prophet some things here. I pray, God, that we would be reminded of the same things that you reminded him of. Lord, help us to understand the book. Help us to each of us to glean something from it. Lord, I put my messages together generally with something in mind I'm trying to convey to the folks. But God, my prayer tonight is that you tailor make the sermon to each life. Each person needs something different from the book. Each person needs something different to encourage them, to correct them. So, Lord, you, Holy Spirit, you work in each individual's life as the Word of God goes forth. Thank you for your Word and a chance to study it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A little background here. Habakkuk was a prophet to the southern kingdom, to the southern kingdom. So, if you've been coming here long... On Wednesday nights, you know that the northern ten tribes was Israel after the divide, right? You have the Rehoboam-Jeroboam divide. Uh, the ten northern tribes is Israel. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, uh, that would be called Judah. So, uh, at this point of the book of Habakkuk being written, um, the ten northern tribes have been carried away by which army? Have you been listening? I'm going to quiz you here. 
the Assyrian army. Very good. You knew that before we started the Bible study, though. Uh, the Assyrian army there. So the Assyrians have come in, and they have taken away the ten uh, northern tribes, and you have the two southern tribes remaining. Habakkuk would live and prophesy during the last 30 to 40 years or so of uh, the Judean rule and reign leading up to the Babylonian captivity. So God sees the Babylonian captivity coming, but uh, Habakkuk has no idea. He just sees all the iniquity around him. He sees all the injustice around him. And he wonders why God isn't stepping in and doing something. And so uh, God sees that the end's coming, but uh, uh, Habakkuk can't see. Habakkuk lacked what I'll say is perspective. Perspective. I love these people, and I, I'm being a little uh, facetious here, but I love those these people that think they're smarter than God. You know what I'm talking about? Well, God, why do you let this happen? Uh, uh, why is this happening in my life? And I liken it to this. It's the guy at the bottom of the mountain telling the guy on the top of the mountain what the guy on the top of the mountain can see. You have God way up here, and we have this big mountain called our future in front of us. We can't see what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, you might already have your entire day planned out. You might have a good idea of what your schedule is going to hold. But you really don't know. Because uh, you ever had one of those phone calls at the beginning of the day that totally alters the whole day? That could happen to you tomorrow. That could happen to you tomorrow. You just don't know. But God does. God does. So don't be the guy at the bottom of the mountain telling the guy at the top of the mountain what he sees. And Habakkuk was doing a little bit of this here. He's saying, God, all this injustice around me, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? And God could see the future. God knew that he was going to do something about it. Now, most prophetic books that we have studied, and most all the prophetic books here in the major minor prophets, contain the prophets sharing a message that is from God and to the people. From God to the people. Jonah's book contains a message about his prophet's relationship to God. So most of them are, are uh, most of them are written uh, from the perspective of from God through the prophet to the people. This uh, Jonah was a book written about God's prophet and his relationship to God. Habakkuk's book contains a message about the prophet's grievances with God. Uh, the prophet's grievances with God. Now. Habakkuk is unique in that Habakkuk never levies any accusations against Israel. Not one. Nor does Habakkuk levy any accusations against any of Israel's enemies. He never points the finger and accuses anybody of anything as far as this direction. Now, he does do a little bit of this, but he doesn't really do any of this. And what we have seen book by book as we've gone through the study is that most of the prophets are taking God's message and, I mean, it's, it's, it's pour back the hide and, 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 and pour in the salt, right? Pull back the hide, pour in the salt. It's just straight, uh, 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 rareback, letter fly type preaching about wickedness and iniquity. Habakkuk doesn't do that. He, he does not levy any accusations against Israel. Now, he references a few of these uh, sins in the beginning of his book, but does not actually accuse Israel of anything. And Habakkuk found himself in a place that many other people, even maybe some of you, find yourself at. Here's the premise of the book. All right, The premise of the book is a question. Here it is. How can God be good when there is so much evil and hurt in the world around me? How can God call himself good when he created the world and the world's filled with evil and hurt. 
That's really the premise of Habakkuk's book. And that's a question he asks God. And I'm paraphrasing what he says or maybe rewording what he says, but that's, the, that's his attitude here. And God answers the question. Now, God looked at the nature of Habakkuk's complaints and at the heart of his prophet and answered his questions. He gave a vision to Habakkuk. We'll look at that vision here in just a moment. And in that vision, he would show Habakkuk uh, the world that the world is cyclical, and in its uh, in it being cyclical, it is filled with injustice and idolatry. Injustice and idolatry. Now, here we are, all these thousands of years later, probably uh, a good twenty eight hundred years later since this was written. Culture has changed. Time has changed. Advancements in communication and transportation have changed. But is the world still filled with injustice and idolatry? Now, we're on the other side of the world from Israel. But it's still filled with injustice and idolatry. And so, God is going to make the point to Habakkuk that this is a cyclical process of nations rising in a just way and in a God-honoring, God-worshipping way and then eventually crumbling under injustice and idolatry. God would also show uh, Isaiah, or rather Habakkuk, that uh, Christ will one day set up His kingdom that will bring about the punishment of the unjust and the worship of the Almighty. So, again, the world is filled with injustice and it's filled with idolatry. One day Christ will set up a political kingdom. We know that is the millennial reign of Christ. And in that political kingdom, this injustice right here, the injustice in the world, will be replaced with God justly reigning the world. The injustice will be removed once and for all. And then over here, the idolatry will be replaced with worshiping the one true almighty God. I can't wait for that day to come. Can't wait for it to come. Now, I believe that many, if not most people, have instances in their lives where they question how God could just sit back and let unjust deeds seemingly go unpunished. You ever been there? How can you let this happen, God? How, how can you just sit on the sideline let that happen? Recently, I knew of, of um, a dad um, who was away from his home for a bit of time and um, while he was gone, at least one of his children were uh, were molested. And he really battled with that. Really battled with that. God, how could you let that happen to my child? How can you claim to be all-powerful and let my child get molested? Most Christians look at the success of the idolatrous world around them and wonder if and when God will actually step in and punish the evildoers. I propose that God's timing and His punishment is perfect. Don't miss this. Our trust, our trust in His timing at times is difficult. Our ability to be able to trust God in His timing. Someone punishes or someone hurts us and we want, we want Him to rule down wrath right now. And God says, mm, I'll do it when I believe the time is right. I just need you to trust me that my timing is right. By the way, that that uh, I don't want to leave that open-ended. That man that had wondered that, he did finally get closure. And he told me, he said, I got closure because I was talking to another pastor. Uh, and that pastor shared with me that God was sitting in the same place when my child was molested that he was when his son was killed on the cross. I thought that was a great response. 
How much restraint did God the Father have to show to not come down and stop them from hurting His Son? Not that He couldn't, He chose not to. And so, um, He was in the same place. God's love should never be questioned. Tonight, let's jump in. Look at four parts of Habakkuk's journey into understanding God's justice and God's timings. Do you have a bulletin? Do you have the outline there? you have your pen ready to go? Let's take notes as we go tonight. Number one, let's jump in and notice Habakkuk's frustrated argument. Habakkuk's frustrated argument. Boy, we're going to find a fired-up prophet here at the very beginning of the book. Letter A, notice the prophet's complaints. The prophet's complaints. Now, we're going to seesaw back and forth between letter A and letter B here. I'm going to go ahead and give you letter B. Letter B is the Lord's clarification. The Lord's clarification. So I'm going to give you, uh, or rather Habakkuk's going to give us two complaints, and the Lord is going to clarify his complaint. Okay, so going back to the prophet's complaints, let's look at the first one there. Notice, number one, in the midst of all this evil, where is God? In the midst of all this evil, where is God? Look back at Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse number 1. Now, the neat thing about this is that with most books, we can only hit a few of the verses in the book because the book's so big. We're going to look at almost the entire book tonight. We'll have to move quickly. Let's look at verse number 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence and... Thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment Proceeded. So let's look at the uh, the allegation that this uh, prophet is hurling at God. He's saying God is ignoring me. Verse two: God is ignoring me when I call on Him in a violent situation. Here, all this violence is happening. I'm calling out to the Lord, and my prayer is seemingly ignored. Verse three: God. He's saying here that God's ignore, ignore, ignoring of me is equal to a crime. God, you're ignoring me, and this is a crime that's being committed against me because you are ignoring me. You ever been there where you're going through a difficult time and you pray and it seems like after you prayed, the situation got worse, not better. Has that ever happened? You ever felt that way? It's like, um, you're not helping, you're making matters worse. Well, you're in the company of Habakkuk here. <laughs> he, he felt like God's not really stepping in and helping. Uh, it, same thing in verse 3, on top of all the pe- uh, violence, he saw that people around him were stirring up strife. We call those troublemakers. Troublemakers. He looked at all these troublemakers around him, and he saw that they were story, stirring up strife. Uh, on top of all that, verse 4, he saw that the Torah... Now, the Torah is not just the first five books of the Bible... The Torah is the entire Old Testament. He saw that the Torah was just being ignored. It was sitting in the corner, covered in cobwebs, totally ignored, not being followed, and that the godless were oppressing the righteous. You have these godless people, they're oppressing the righteous. And Jeremiah would have been a contemporary here of Habakkuk, and he probably saw someone like a Jeremiah getting thrown down in a pit or thrown in a prison cell. And he thought, good night, the godless are ruling over the righteous and oppressing them. So, in the midst of all this evil, where is God? Where is God? And God's response, uh, look down, uh, let's look at that first response there, the Lord's clarification. And here's God's response. I am preparing Babylon. 
I am preparing Babylon. Look down with me at chapter uh, 1, verse number 5 there. Here's God's response to his, uh, his uh, accusation. It says there, Behold, this is God speaking, Behold ye among the heathen in regard, and, uh, and wonder marvelous, marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the, the, the breadth of the land to uh, possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And uh, their horsemen shall spread themselves and the horsemen shall come from far. Uh, 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 they shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come, uh, ale, they shall come all uh, for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity of the sand, and they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall uh, deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Uh, look at verse 11. Lastly, then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over in fin- imputing that his power, um, imputing uh, this, his power unto his God. So God's response to Habakkuk's complaining about God doing nothing is, listen up, it's not that I'm not doing nothing, it's that you can't see what I'm doing. While I'm watching my people commit all of this violence and all uh, 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 stir up all this strife and neglect the Torah and oppress the, the righteous, I'm over here preparing the Babylonian army and getting them ready. And when the time is right, I'm going to send them in and I'm going to punish my people. So, uh, again, uh, uh, Habakkuk raises the complaint, in the midst of all this evil, where are you, God? You're not doing anything. You're ignoring my prayer. And God says, Habakkuk, I'm not ignoring your prayer. I'm preparing an army to come in and punish my people. And that answer did not satisfy the prophet. He didn't like that. Um, uh, Complaint number two. But isn't Babylon worse than Israel? Wait a minute here, God. What? You're going to punish us? with a group of people that are more vile and wicked than we are? What are you doing, God? Look with me here. Look at verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, thou hast established them for corruption. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore, lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Are you seeing this here? He's saying, uh, look, you're smarter than this, God. You're more holy than this to use people that's less righteous than we are to send them in to punish us. You see the, the question mark there at the end of verse 13. Look at verse 14. And makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no uh, ruler over them. They take up all of uh, them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, uh, they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense under their drag because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nation? Here he's saying, God, you're going to use people that are more wicked than us to punish us? How? That makes no sense. No sense. And then he says this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
He says, after uh, laying out this complaint before the Lord, he says in verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Now, he's saying, I'm going to go stand on top of the wall in my watchtower and I'm going to wait for God to answer me. He even goes a step beyond it. I'm going to wait for God to chastise me. I have laid out my complaint before the Lord and I'm sure that I'm just not seeing this clearly and I'm going to wait for Him to answer me and I'm going to wait for Him to reprove me. So we see His complaint. He says, look, uh, uh, in the midst of all this evil, God, where are you? And God's answer is, I'm preparing the Babylonians. And He comes back and says, well, well, wait a minute. Isn't Babylon worse than we are? How are you going to use them? Look at God's clarification. Number two, I will use Babylon and then punish her. I will use Babylon and then punish her. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come It shall not tarry. So he's up on the wall. He's waiting for the Lord to respond. Finally, the Lord comes to him and says, Okay, get down off the wall. Get yourself a tablet. Get yourself a chisel. I'm going to give you some things that I want you to to chisel into that tablet. Uh, uh, I'm going to give you a vision, and I want you to put it there. And the reason why I want it in a tablet is long after you're gone, I still want this to be read. And here's what it's going to say. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. This is... His, this is the nation of Babylon, uh, 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 but the just shall live by faith. If you're looking for a great nugget to walk away with tonight, the just shall live by faith. You can underline that. That's a great verse. The just, the just, the righteous. What did we say was living in Israel? Injustice and idolatry. What does it say here? The just shall live by faith. What was Habakkuk not doing? He was just, but he wasn't living by faith. He was hailing, uh, hurling rather accusations against God, complaints against God. Where is your timing? And I step back and I say to you what Habakkuk will learn by the end of the book is you just need to trust God's timing. His timing isn't our timing. His way is not our way. We've got to trust that. Look down with me at um, verse 5. Yea, also, because he transgressed by wine... He is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. So God says about Babylon that uh, they, they, they're territorial, uh, ter- they're, they're all about gaining more territory. They're expansionists, if you will, and they're gathering in a corrupt and evil way. And God is saying here, I will punish her. Now, uh, here is something that maybe for some of you will it'll be a light bulb moment. Especially if you're like Habakkuk. God, how can you let so much evil exist in the world and still call yourself good? Uh, maybe this, like, like, um, like Habakkuk had, maybe you'll have a light bulb moment here. I know that for me, it helped enhance my understanding of this already. God can use someone without endorsing them. You hear with me? You listening? He can use them without endorsing them. You know, God can use your secular, godless boss to teach you a lesson about faith. I think about um, uh, that time I was thrown out of that church in Maryland. 
was done in a very carnal way. Pastor was a carnal man. Threw me out of my head. You know, uh, God can use the godless to correct and get His people along where He wants. Just because God used that man to grow me does not mean He endorsed His actions. You all understanding this tonight? Sometimes bad things happen to us by someone else who is sinning against us. And we look back on it and we say, Wow! I can see how God used that action to grow me in this way. Just because God used someone else's sin to grow you does not mean that God endorsed the sin. God was going to use Babylon, a wicked, vile, paganistic country, to come in and punish His people. But that does not mean that God was endorsing everything that Babylon did. Everything Babylon was. God would then go on to um, uh, to explain through this vision how exactly it was that God was going to punish Babylon when the time was right. And I believe that there are a lot of parallels between uh, the the accusations that were going to be raised by Habakkuk against Babylon, or rather that God's going to give Habakkuk through this vision. Uh, I believe that there are a lot of parallels between that and our country. Let's go to number two and we'll see Babylon's five woes. Babylon's five woes. Now, interestingly enough, the word woe in the Bible, let's talk about this for a minute. The word woe is an expression used when words are insufficient. By the way, that's how it works in English, isn't it? You see something happen and you don't know what to say and it kind of catches you off guard. What do you say? Whoa. Right? That's an expression of, I, I don't really know... How else to say that? Your husband comes home from work and he says, Honey, I drove our car off the edge of the cliff and I dove out in the process. And you go, Whoa. Right? Um, Honey, I shrunk the kids. You did what? No, that might not be a whoa moment, right? Um, uh, uh, whatever that would be, that woe is an expression used when words are insufficient. And either, it either in the Bible, when you find the word woe, you find in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and both have the same translation, whether it's coming from the Hebrew or the Greek. And either, it either expresses, notice this, strong grief or strong impending judgment. One of the two. Strong grief or strong impending judgment. It is the strongest expression that Habakkuk could offer. Now, we're going to look at these five woes, and these are five uh, expressions of strong impending judgment coming from God through Habakkuk uh, to, uh, uh, to the Babylonians. And we're going to see these. Again, this is not Habakkuk raising uh, a woe against uh, uh, Babylon as much as it is as God showing this to Habakkuk and him witnessing it, writing it down. So the first two woes, woes one and two, have to do with economic injustice. Economic injustice. Our slide shows all over it tonight. Hebrews, uh, uh, Habakkuk chapter two and verse number six. Look here. Shall not these, again, this is against uh, Babylon, shall not these take up a parable against him and a taunting parable against him and say, woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long and to him that uh, elateth himself with thick clay. Now let me stop here before we continue the reading. 
Um, I want you to do something tonight. I want you to Americanize this passage. This is where we live. We live in the United States of America. This was written against Babylon, but I want us to see if any of these apply to our country and even apply to our lives and see if we can't fix it. All right. So here verse 6 says that uh, this person is taking gain which is not his. Verse 7, Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties or for looting uh, uh, unto them? Verse 8, Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of thy people shall spoil thee because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land of the city, and of all that dwell therein. So this first woe has to do with them running in and just running over countries, and taking advantage of them, and looting them, and stealing that which is not theirs. Okay, Verse number 9, Woe to him, there's the second woe, Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house. Look at here, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. So this is a person, uh, uh, if you really look at this, uh, what this is describing, the second woe, is describing a creditor who is... Charging so much interest, the poor can never climb out of their hole. And they just keep getting gain. I knew, um, I knew a guy, he claimed to be a Christian, I question that sometimes. Uh, but I knew a guy who opened up a car lot. He's a Christian man, or I should say he went to a Christian church. He opened up a car lot and he charged so much interest for the car and it required like $1,500 down payment that there's no way these people were ever going to be able to make the payment. Bad credit, one of those bad credit type deals, right? And then he had a hidden GPS sensor under the vehicle. So what they would do is they would take the down payment and sell the car. They would collect until the the, the monthly payment quit coming in. And after they got to be one month or two months behind, he would send a tow truck out to repossess the vehicle, put it back on the lot, and then turn around and resell it. And they sold the same 25 cars over and over and over again. That's what this is talking about. Those that set themselves up high in a nest and they take advantage of the poor. Now, um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit different here than what this guy was doing because they're do, they're, the whole economic structure is set up to keep the poor people poor and make the rich people rich. Look at woe number three. Cruel slavery. Now, all slavery is cruel, but cruel slavery. I will say this. In the Bible, some slavery is more cruel than others, although slavery is wrong. I, I want to make sure I state that. Look down with me at verse number 12. It says there, Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So uh, they're building they're building their cities. The Babylonians are building their cities on the backs of slaves, and human life had been totally devalued. Slaves were treated subhuman. And they would look at a project. You know how like sometimes you look at a project and you'll, uh, uh, you'll, you'll say, well, uh, it's going to cost us this much to do it. And we, you know, like if you're doing like building a new house, it never costs what they tell you it's going to cost, right? They may quote 200,000. It's probably going to cost you 350,000, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about? 
Um, they were looking at this and saying, okay, well, to build this city, it's going to cost us probably 200 slaves. Well, give or take 100. Now, is that a way to treat somebody? And God's looking at these Babylonians and saying, there's impending judgment on you because of the way you're treating human lives, the devaluing of human lives. I've been doing some, um, not to get too far off track here, but I've been doing some research. And I would like to ask the church's help for this. We're working on our missions conference for next March. And I'm trying to locate a Baptist missionary that is working hard to overcome or at least to counter on some level the abortion movement. The abortion movement. There are a lot of evangelical uh, works out there. There doesn't seem to be any Baptists that I have found that do that. So if you know of one, let me know. I would like to have our church take on a missionary that is working to overcome on some level uh, the uh, abortion decision in our country. Uh, If they're not working to do that, they're at least taking in women and helping change their mind on the topic. So if you, I have found some parachurch, interdenominational faith places that do that. I'm looking for someone that is uh, similar to us that we can bring in here. And I'm willing maybe to expand our horizon beyond the, inter, uh, the, the Baptist movement if we need to, but ideally if there's someone out there like that, I'd like to support them. If you know of anyone like that, let me know. But I've got to tell you, I've been doing a lot of looking and reading, and even today I was doing some uh, digging on that, some looking of that, and I read several uh, stories off of several websites about people who are contemplating abortion. And I've got to tell you, I was just reminded all over again uh, how, how sad and sickening it is that our country devalues life the way it, it does. And that's what the Babylonians were guilty of here. They were devaluing life. Devaluing life. The fourth woe impending judgment was manipulative leaders. Look down at verse number 15 with me. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Now, look here what the motivation of giving alcohol is. That putteth thy bottle to him and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. I love how the Bible is so concise with his language. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell therein. Here he's looking at these Babylonians, and they're giving, they're giving their neighbor alcohol to get them drunk so that they can take advantage of them sexually. That's what's going on here. You can't read this any other way. And I love how, um, I don't love the sin, but I love the conciseness again of the Bible. Look at verse 16. And this is a great thing to take away for our culture. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Now, what God has created in the sexual act between a husband and wife, that is glorious. I think too often times in the Baptist world, especially my parents' generation, is that we have uh, treated that topic as total taboo. 
We don't talk about it. We don't, we don't, we don't, we will almost pretend like it doesn't exist. That three letter word is a dirty word. We can't use it. We don't ever talk about it. And I gotta say that I think that some of the, that crowd, my parents age, which is some of you in here, uh, and I'm not accusing anybody in this room because I don't know your circumstances, but uh, I think that that generation uh, went too far so far as to say, we don't talk about this ever at all. And I gotta say that that act, uh, uh, that thing God created, and it is glorious. And it needs to be carefully explained to, to your children in a way that is not uncomfortable. And it needs to be explained to them in a way at a proper time where they feel like they can come back to you if they have any questions and you won't make it uncomfortable. If you're here today and you've got children in the 4th, 5th, 6th grade, uh, uh, I pray the Lord gives you discretion on the when, but you make sure they find out about the facts of life from you before they find it out from the TV or from their friends at school or in the neighborhood. They need to know that from you. And you make sure that they know that that is a glorious thing. It is not a shameful thing. It is not a shameful thing. But here what the prophet is getting at is that uh, you're getting the glorious thing I created through shameful tactics. Shame on you. Woe unto you for that. We, uh, we live in a tender-driven society, right? Swipe, swipe left for one, swipe right for the other. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. There's this app called Tinder. I don't recommend you download it, okay? And it's basically a hookup app so you can find someone that you can have relations with for one time and then you part and go your ways. It's a wicked, wicked, wicked thing. That, that goes on in the world today. Some of you are totally shocked right now. That goes on in the world today. And uh, uh, it, that is getting a thing that is glorious through shameful tactics. You have the old guy that goes down to the bar, sits next to the prettiest girl at the bar, does everything he can to get her drunk so that he can... He can take her home, and that is labeled as a good thing. That's been going on for years. And i got to say that that's exactly the same thing this is talking about. Uh, we look at that fifth woe, and it is idolatry. Idolatry. Look down to verse 18. This is where we begin tonight. What profiteth the graven image that uh, the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake! To the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in His holy temple, and all the earth keeps silence before Him. So that woes are ended with this reminder that we, we need to worship the Lord, not graven images. What were they doing? They were creating, they were, they were creating a, 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 a false idol out of wood or stone. They were overlaying it with gold and silver, and then they were worshiping it as though it had some kind of power. And he's just pointing out the idiocy of that. Uh, injustice we see and idolatry we see here. Let's move on here and see number three. We've got to move quickly. We notice the Lord's future exodus. The Lord's future exodus. And here's where we see that this isn't just about Babylon. These five woes, these five woes that we covered... Uh, most all of these can be found in almost every single empire before the Babylonians, during the Babylonians, and after the Babylonians. So what happens? Notice the cycle here. Remember I said earlier it's cyclical. The Babylonians devoured the Israelites. Then what happened to the Babylonians? They were devoured by the Persians, who were devoured by the Greeks, who were devoured by, you know what I'm saying here? All the way down. Now I may not have who devoured who proper, 
But the idea here is what I'm trying to get at is that you have an idolatrous country, idolatrous, unjust country that devours an idolatrous, unjust country that is devoured by another, that is devoured by another, all the way down to where we're at today, where idolatry and injustice is still everywhere. And if this is a cycle that continues. So this, this book of Habakkuk, while it is addressed to the Babylonians, it applies to any any country or uh, any empire that is guilty of the exact same thing. And and, uh, uh, Habakkuk is told here in chapter 3 that this will one day, this cycle will be stopped. And it will be stopped much like uh, the Israelites were exited out of uh, Israel. The righteous will be exited out of the cycle and there will be a future exodus, if you will. Hebrews, or rather Habakkuk, Chapter number three, and notice here the parallels between uh, the plagues there in um, uh, the, the plagues there in Egypt and what what happens here in verse three of Habakkuk three. It says there, God came from Teman, and this is again the vision, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covereth the heavens, and uh, the earth was full of His praise, and His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of His hand, and there was the hiding of His power. Uh, before Him went His pestilence, and uh, burning coals went forth at His feet. He stood and measured the earth He beheld, and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered, and the perpetual uh, hills did bow His ways are everlasting. I, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. What is this? What is this? This is Christ leaving heaven with his uh, with us behind him. This is him coming down into the the valley of Megiddo and fighting that war. That's what this is right here. This is the future Exodus of him exiting out the captives, the 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 tribulation saints, and entering them into safety. Uh, uh, we see here, letter A, that he will defeat evil. He will defeat evil. Look at verse 12. And I'm going to wrap it up here. Look at verse 12. It says, The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went. And at the shining of thy glittering spear... I'm sorry, it was verse 11. Look at verse 12. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. So, God's going to defeat the evil, and this is when that messianic king uh, of David, that 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 lineage of of David, Jesus Christ comes and he rules and reigns. Look at letter B. He will deliver the captives. Look at verse thirteen. Thou wentst forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah. So here we see that this future exodus where God comes down, He defeats the, the evil, the Antichrist, He sets up His millennial reign. That will be a process of defeating the evil and then delivering the captives. Number four, and let's finish with this. This will be a great point of application to close the message on, the lesson on. Notice Habakkuk's fresh understanding. Habakkuk's fresh understanding. Will you look down with me at verse number 17? Here he comes out of the vision. And he enters back into the unjust, idolatrous reality that he lived in. But now that he's had this vision, now God has answered his complaint and given him a new understanding. Look at verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fall, shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be 
cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stall. So we're back to his reality. There's nothing good around me. Look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hinds' feet. And He will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer of my string instruments. What's he saying here? He's saying the earth's still filled with violence. It's still filled with troublemakers. It's still filled with folks ignoring the Torah. And it's still filled with people taking advantage of the poor. But now, but now Habakkuk's saying, I understand that God has everything under control. And history tells us that God did do what He said He would do here. And it reminds us that He still does what He says He's going to do. I bring this sermon full circle right here. The question isn't, is God or can God? The question is, will God? Or rather, the question is, when will God? When will God? And the real question is this, my friend. Will you trust His timing? Someone does you wrong? You see injustice and idolatry around you? Are you going to trust in His timing? Because it's going to be different than yours. Habakkuk was having a hard time with this, so God gave him this vision. And after the vision, he learned to trust. We have to learn to trust the timing of God. Let's have our heads bowed nice closed this evening. What a great book. One that is